Please join me in your Bibles in Acts chapter 24 for today's reading of God's Word. We'll be reading the whole chapter. And after, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some of the elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about the faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. May God bless the preaching of his word. Thank you. And let's pray again as we come to God's Word together this morning. Father, again, what a privilege it is to come and to hear from Your Word. 
We know that Your Word is living and active. We know that Your Word is a double-edged sword. We know that You designed Your Word, Father, to penetrate into the deepest recesses of our being and to expose all of the sin that lies within us and remains within us because You are the one, the holy God of creation. You are the one to whom we must give an account for all of this sin. And so, Father, we acknowledge the grace of Jesus that covers all of our sin and unrighteousness. And we acknowledge, Father, that it is Your purpose to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds according to the living, active power of Your Word. And so we ask, Lord, that You would be at work to that end here today as we come to Your Word, that it would expose in all of us sin that needs to be repented of. And Father, that Your grace would bring about that repentance as we keep growing and maturing and thriving and striving for holiness in our lives more and more and more. And so, Father, be with us and help us as we come to Your Word this morning. Help us to not only be hearers, but more and more to be doers. And may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sometimes, as Christians, we like to ask each other questions like this. We like to ask each other, what's your favorite book of the Bible, right? Or what's your favorite verse, right? And even though it's okay, even though all of God's Word is breathed out by Him, and even though it's all equally profitable for our lives, even though there's no bad parts in God's Word, it's a double-edged sword, none of it's dull, all of it's sharp and able to do its work in us. Some pa- it's okay that, that some passages for us have especially impactful meaning for our lives, right? All of us have certain portions of God's Word that, that are especially meaningful to us in particular ways in our lives, and that's okay. How about this question, though? What passages of Scripture are most difficult for you? And I don't just mean difficult to understand. I mean, what passages, which we might understand in our minds perfectly well, which ones, though, are difficult in the sense that they're uncomfortable for us? In the sense that they're disturbing to us? in a way. Passages that make us uneasy. Passages that may scare us. Aren't there those? One of those kind of of difficult passages that came to my mind this week as I was preparing for our study in Acts 24, one of those difficult passages that came into my mind is is in the 5th and 6th chapters of the book of Hebrews. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. I'll read it here for you in a second. This passage in Hebrews came to my mind as I was meditating on our text here in Acts 24. And when we get to the end of Acts 24 and start to focus on Felix, you're going to understand why. For now, just listen as I read these verses by way of sort of a preface. As as I read them, um, would you, as you're listening... Would you pray that the Holy Spirit would not just help you to understand these words from the book of Hebrews, but to feel this profound sense of 
discomfort that these verses were actually designed by the Holy Spirit and intended to provoke in the hearts of God's true people. Because it's a discomfort that God would have to cause this effect of sobering us and urging us to continue to grow in our faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, this is, this is from Hebrews. The author of Hebrews has begun in the first five chapters to extol the great supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And he says to his audience and everybody who would read and hear the words of the book of Hebrews, everyone who professes faith in Jesus, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 5 and verse 11, we have much to say. Listen, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It's not hard to explain because the material itself is particularly difficult. It's hard to explain to them because they've become dull of hearing. For though, he says, by this time you ought to be teachers. You ought to understand the word so well that you're able to be teachers. But instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. That's how dull they've become. You need milk, not so you're like babies, infants who, who can't even digest solid food. For and I'm not saying this is you all, I'm just saying, don't these words make us uncomfortable? For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, listen, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God for their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain and that often falls on it and and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless. It is near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Those are uncomfortable words. The kind of person that's being described there in Hebrews 5 and 6 is someone who has some interest in Jesus. Some interest in the Gospel, in the Word of God, in the Christian faith. They profess to have faith in Christ, but they don't actually possess saving faith in Christ. It's describing a person who's not actually saved. They're not actually born again, regenerated, raised to new life through Jesus. And that gets demonstrated, that gets proven by the fact that this faith, this bare kind of nominal in name only faith that they have remains unfruitful. 
the, the desires of their flesh and the things of this world cause their hearing of the Word of God to become dull. And so they only have an appetite for the basics. They don't have any desire to grow and to be growing in their faith continually. They're like babies who never progress past milk to solid food. And that dullness leads to a failure to grow and thrive, just like it would for a baby who never learns to eat solid food. Spiritually, people who grow dull fail to thrive, fail to be growing in maturity and in sanctification, growing in putting sin to death in their lives every day, growing in in holiness, growing in increasing conformity to the image of the glory of Christ. And that spiritual failure to thrive eventually leads this passage is teaching us to them falling away from Christ altogether when the temptations of the world and of the flesh outweigh their interest in Him, or when the trials of the world make trusting Him seem to not be worth it anymore, and falling away from Christ leads to everlasting condemnation, which awaits everyone who doesn't truly trust in Him with saving faith. And so in spite of the fact that people like this profess faith in Jesus. They don't actually possess saving faith in Jesus. And so they're not, they haven't truly been saved by His grace alone through, through living, saving faith alone. That's why their lives are not continuing to, to grow and mature in fruitful obedience to Him. That's a, that's a tough scripture, right? That one makes us really uncomfortable, right? Well, see, it's designed to. It's designed to so that the great eternal danger of of spiritual dullness, which leads to immaturity, which leads to falling away, which leads to condemnation, that that danger will instill an urgency in the hearts and lives of true believers to be growing, to be feeding constantly on the meat and the marrow of God's Word and growing and thriving continually in holiness and maturity and continuing to run the race with endurance and and continuing to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Resisting temptation more and more, enduring tribulation more and more until we finish the race and finish it well and enter into His eternal rest. Which is, for instance, the way that the Apostle Paul lived his life, isn't it? Not in some kind of sinless perfection, but in constant growing maturity and holiness and fruitfulness and usefulness for the kingdom. We've seen that all throughout Paul's life in the book of Acts. And at the end of Acts 24 here, we see a great and terrible and tragic contrast in the life of Governor Felix, who heard, who understood who was well acquainted, who had interest, but never grew in repentance, in holiness. And it's that contrast between the true living faith of Paul, leading to a growing, thriving maturity and increasing fruitfulness. It's the contrast between that and the nominal, in name only, 
and ultimately worthless faith of Felix, that's what I want for us to highlight today as we walk through this passage where Luke chronicles the first of several legal trials that Paul is subjected to by the Roman authorities. So, let's jump into this text together today. This chapter, chapter 24, is a basic narrative of events chronicled by Luke that falls out into three main sections as Luke tells us about this this legal trial that Paul was subjected to. Three main sections. The prosecution of Paul by a man named Tertullus, the defense that Paul makes in answering Tertullus's accusations, and then the adjournment of this trial by Felix, the Roman governor. Those are just the three basic narrative sections here. So remember, Paul is in custody. He's in the custody of the Roman tribune in Jerusalem, whose name is Claudius Lysias. And a few weeks ago, we saw that While Paul was being held there in Jerusalem, a group of unbelieving Jews conspired together and plotted to murder Paul. But you remember that by God's providence, Paul's nephew heard about this plot and came and warned Paul and told the tribune about the plot. And so Lysias had Paul escorted out of Jerusalem by night, protected by 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearsmen. That's almost half of the half of the soldiers who were garrisoned there in the Antonia Fortress, and they were to take him up to Caesarea where he would come under the jurisdiction and protection of Felix, the Roman governor over all of Judea. And Lysias sent all of those soldiers along with Paul with a, with a letter that was written to Governor Felix. And in that letter, Lysias' conclusion was, back up in chapter 23 and verse 29, his conclusion was basically that Paul hadn't done anything wrong, certainly not anything that warranted imprisonment, let alone death. But the Jews plotted to kill Paul. And so this is why Lysias explains that he had sent him up to safety in Caesarea, where Felix, his superior, could take this matter up and hear from Paul's accusers and and decide whether Paul was guilty of anything or not. So this is where Paul is now. He's arrived now at Caesarea. He's being kept. He's being guarded in Herod's Praetorium there, which is a large, fortified palace under Roman control. And so now, verse 1 of chapter 24 Five days after Paul arrives in Caesarea, the high priest from Jerusalem, Ananias, we we met him earlier, right? He's the one who ordered Paul to be punched in the mouth. Ananias now comes down to Caesarea, along with a number of the Jewish leaders, having been summoned to come by the Roman governor Felix in order to make their case against Paul, in order to bring the prosecution's case against Paul. And one of the men who came was a man named Tertullus, who, who seems to have been a trained lawyer. And he was the one that was appointed to present the, the prosecuting case against Paul before Felix, right? He's opening for the prosecution here. And it seems like Tertullus must be good at he's He must have done this before because, because he's good at what he does. He's, he's practiced at this kind of thing. He follows a very typical approach to formally bringing charges against an accused person in the presence of a magistrate in the Roman world. Step one of that process is flatter the magistrate. 
right? Try to win some points, try to gain the magistrate's approval so that he might be sympathetic to your case. It's called in Roman parlance a captatio benvolentiae. Captatio benvolentiae. It's, it's words designed to capture the benevolence, the goodwill of the magistrate. Essentially what Tertullus is doing here is kissing up to the magistrate. So he says, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix reforms are being made for our nation... In every way, and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Kind of butters him up. And then, having sufficiently fawned over Felix, Tertullus brings two main charges, two main accusations against Paul. The first one is designed to set the tone of guilt in Felix's mind And so Tertullus leads with something that is geared to upsetting Felix, especially as a Roman magistrate. For the Romans, who worked tirelessly to maintain the integrity of this empire that was was spread pretty far and wide, for them, very few things mattered more than keeping the peace in all of the areas of the empire, right? They called it the Pax Romana, and that was all important. Everybody in the empire has got to be at peace because there's enough pressure to worry about from the outside which is pressing in. All those barbarian tribes pressing in from the outside. That's enough to worry about. We can't afford any internal strife perforating us and making us vulnerable. And so anyone in the empire that was threatening the internal peace of the empire, they would be treated very very severely. And so this is the first thing that Tertullus accuses Paul of doing. We have found this man to be a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the whole empire. And he's a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. Sounds terrible, right? The sect of the Nazarenes is a reference to the Christians who were followers of Jesus the Nazarene. And the way the Jews portrayed them was that they were everywhere in the empire, that they were existing and growing. They were stirring up trouble. The unbelieving Jews loved to point their finger at the Christians and identify them as the source of any unrest and disturbance in the Jewish communities around the empire. And so Tertullus is accusing Paul, the Christian, of stirring up riots and of being a plague to the Pax Romana, a disease that was, that was afflicting the peace of the empire. And then the second charge that he levels against Paul is that Paul had tried to desecrate the Jewish temple. Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. We, we prevented him from doing that. The word profane means to desecrate, means to defile something. It means to take something clean and, and to dirty it, to soil it, to pollute it. And Tertullus is referring here to the false accusation that Paul had brought the Gentile man Trophimus into the inner courtyards of the temple, which Paul hadn't done, but they accused him of that. And Tertullus says, we had to stop, so we seized Paul to keep him from defiling the temple that way, which, which again, that's not what happened, is it? 
right? The words, we seized Paul, are a very loose or a very dishonest euphemism for we tried to lynch Paul. We tried to beat him to death. That's really what happened back in chapter 21. And so Tertullus levels these two main accusations against Paul, and then he concludes his opening statements by saying to Felix in verse 8, By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And then all of the other Jews who were present all testified against Paul and affirmed their accusations in verse 9. That was the prosecution's case against Paul. Now, Felix, the governor, didn't say anything in response, didn't ask any questions, didn't ask for any clarifications. He just, in verse 10, simply nods to Paul. Signals that Paul is now free to speak in his own defense. And notice Paul also starts with a captatio benvolente, but it's a little more modest, right? It's a lot less cheesy than Tertullus's has been. He just says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Tertullus had sort of flagrantly tried to butter Felix up with flattery. Paul, though, simply and respectfully and gratefully acknowledges Felix's position of civil authority over him. And then he goes straight in to answering the specific accusations against him. First accusation was that he was a troublemaker. He was a plague to the peace of the empire. He was was guilty of stirring up riots everywhere he went, and especially in Jerusalem. And so Paul's defense is this, verse 11. He's saying this to Felix, You can verify that it's not more than 12 days from now since I went to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue of any city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So you see, essentially Paul's saying, look, there's no way, reasonably, that in the short amount of time that I was in Jerusalem, that I had anywhere near the time that I would need to foment an insurrection against the empire of Rome. He's just pointing on the basis of the bare facts. He's pointing out how ridiculous the first accusation actually was. And he's confident that Felix, if he's a reasonable person at all, that Felix will see for himself how silly this accusation was. And on top of that, Paul, in reality, did not have any intention of raising up an insurrection, right? No, and he'll say this later, he had come to Jerusalem as a pilgrim for Pentecost in order to worship and to bring a financial gift to help the poor people in Jerusalem. He came to bless people, not to cause trouble and initiate a riot. Initiating the riot was what his accusers did in actual fact. They were the ones who were really guilty of inciting a riot and disturbing the peace in Jerusalem, not Paul. And then next, Paul answered the accusation that he was a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And this is what I want you to notice in verse 14. Notice how Paul begins very, very deliberately to not just give a defense of himself before his accusers, but to take the opportunity to turn it into a defense of the gospel. Because, and we've seen this in past weeks, Paul has learned 
By his firm conviction of the providence of God, Paul has learned to see the trials and sufferings of his life as God-ordained opportunities for the gospel. God doesn't do or allow or ordain anything by mistake. And so Paul says, how can I use this hardship in my life as an opportunity to glorify Christ? And so he sees these legal trials even as a God-ordained opportunity to preach the gospel to, to a Roman magistrate. So he says, this I confess to you, that according to the way, and, and again, the way is, is, a, is a buzzword for the Christian faith, right? Followers after Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. This I confess to you, that according to the way, according to the Christian faith, which, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, and having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul's saying the way, the Christian faith is no sect. It's not some radical faction It's not some unorthodox splinter group. It's not some cult. It's not some departure from the true faith of the Old Testament Scriptures. No, 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 no. Paul is declaring unequivocally that the way of Jesus Christ is the God-ordained fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament Scriptures has promised and has prophesied and has proclaimed. He's saying there is absolutely nothing inconsistent about the way of Christ with the Old Testament Scriptures. In fact, the only thing inconsistent is to reject Christ as the fulfillment and the realization of everything that God revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures. And he makes this point in an extremely poignant way by highlighting four things. First, he says that the God he worships is the God of their Jewish ancestors. He hasn't abandoned the true God. He hasn't exchanged deities. He has come to worship the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Second, he says, that he believes in everything that is revealed in the Old Testament law and prophets. He's not denying any of it. He hasn't abandoned anything that was written in the law or the prophets or the Old Testament. He's simply come to follow the one in whom the whole law is fulfilled. He's simply come to, to be devoted to the one who was spoken of by all of the prophets. And then third, Paul says that in following Jesus, he's come to realize the very hope that his accusers themselves have always strived after in their devotion to the Old Testament Scriptures. What hope is that? What did the Pharisees hope for as they were devoted to the Old Testament Scriptures? They they hoped for everlasting life. That's, That's the hope that the Old Testament Scriptures proclaim And that God reveals that is coming for those who are faithful to Him. It's the hope of everlasting life. It's the hope of of the resurrection of the dead, which the Pharisees themselves believed in from the Old Testament Scriptures. Remember? The hope that the Holy God would not allow death and corruption to prevail. To have the last word, the final say in this sin-cursed world. 
but that God would marvelously defeat death itself through marvelous redemption and resurrection. It's the hope David spoke of in Psalm 16 that God would not abandon His holy ones to Sheol or let them endure everlasting corruption. And in Christ, all of that hope is fulfilled, Paul's saying. It's the hope that Job voiced in Job chapter 19 when he said, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last He will stand upon the earth and after my skin has thus been destroyed, after I have died physically, yet even so in my flesh I shall see God. That's resurrection hope. Whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. And Job says, oh, when I contemplate that, that God will raise me up so that in my flesh I will see Him and be with Him forever. Oh, how my heart faints within me. And see, the Pharisees knew that hope. This was, this was the hope that every Old Testament saint who believed in all of the Old Testament Scriptures of the Word of God, this, this is what they hoped for. A victory of God over sin and the devil. The victory of life over death. And the hope of seeing in our resurrected flesh our Redeemer, our God, and beholding Him and being with Him in everlasting peace and joy. Paul says, I know all about the hope that you have. I have the same hope that makes all our hearts faint. And I've come to realize the source of it, guys. It's Jesus. He's the risen Messiah. He's the one who has conquered death. He's the first fruits of everlasting resurrection life. I haven't abandoned the hope that you're waiting for. I found it, Paul's saying. I've really, you hear him preaching the gospel? Not just to the Pharisees, but also to Felix. And then he says to Felix on the basis of all of this, he says that he's always strived as a follower of the way of Jesus Christ and as one who lives according to the great hope of of eternal glory that is only found through faith in Jesus Christ. He's always striped. He's always taken pains to keep a clear conscience before God. And men, I haven't done anything wrong, Paul says, because I love God and I love His law and I love righteousness because He so loved me that He raised me to newness of life in Christ. I'm no insurrectionist. He's no threat to the Pax Romana. He's no opponent to civil government, right? Paul's the one who exhorted Christians who were living in Rome, in the book to the Romans, to be submissive to their earthly governing authorities in Romans 13. And to do everything so far as it depended on them to be at peace with everyone. Paul's not troublemaking. He's exhorting everybody to be at peace and to be submissive and to live a quiet and peaceful life, right? That's Paul's heart. That's Paul's example. And then Paul answers the other main accusation that he had tried to profane or desecrate to defile the temple of God. Verse 17. He says, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings and while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. Remember, he went through that ritual purification without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. They're the ones that stirred up the trouble. And where are they if they're going to accuse me of doing it? Or else let these men themselves, these rulers 
of the Jewish nation, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul had no intention of desecrating the temple. He'd come to the temple to bring gifts and offerings. He'd come into the temple having purified himself ritually first, not looking to defile anything. He didn't bring a crowd of his own followers. He didn't try to stir up a riot. That's what the Jews from Asia did. And where are they, by the way? They started this whole thing. Why aren't they here to accuse me? See, there, there are no actual eyewitnesses for the prosecution, in other words, right? And the Pharisees, remember back in chapter 23, they'd already said that they couldn't find anything wrong with Paul when he met before the Sanhedrin. And so the only ones who had an actual dispute with Paul were, were the Sadducees, who denied the resurrection, which the Pharisees believed in, which the Pharisees accepted, because the Sadducees rejected all of the Old Testament scriptures except the first five books. So they didn't believe in the resurrection. And that dispute is a theological dispute. It's not a civil, it's not a criminal matter. And those Sadducees who deny the resurrection, they've got that same theological dispute with the Pharisees, and and the Pharisees never get brought up on charges of insurrection or heresy. So this is Paul's defense, and it's a pretty good defense, right? Their case makes zero sense rationally. They've got no eyewitnesses. They've got no proof. And the only thing that they can legitimately accuse me of is affirming a theological doctrine that half of the Sanhedrin also affirms. Because their eternal hope depends on it and they know that. And again, all the while, Paul's not just shooting massive gaping holes in the prosecution's harebrained case. And he's not just defending himself against their trumped-up charges against him. He's, he's most importantly defending publicly before his Jewish accusers, before Felix the Roman governor, he's defending the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way unto the Father. And this by far is Paul's greatest concern, right? He doesn't care about his own freedom. He doesn't care about his own bondage to the Romans nearly so much as he cares about seeing other people, Jews, Romans, Gentiles, being freed from the everlasting bonds of sin and death. That's what Paul cares about, right? Remember, I do not account my life as of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what I care about. That's all that matters, so that's what he's doing. And here, at the end of chapter 24, Luke records how, even though Paul had made a very conclusive case in defense of himself, and even though before the trial ever began, the Roman tribune Lysias, who sent him up here to meet with Felix, had said, I can't find him having done anything wrong. And even though the Pharisees had said, we can't find anything that he's done wrong, still we see here at the end of chapter 24 that Felix, the governor, didn't release Paul. 
He gave him certain freedoms, certain privileges, but Paul was still not a free man. Lysias is kind of on the horns of a dilemma here. He can't convict Paul since no one, not the Sanhedrin, not Lysias back in Jerusalem, not Tertullus here, and the high priest's cohort here, no one has managed to substantiate any charges against Paul. So, can't convict him on the one hand, but on the other hand, Felix also didn't want to release Paul. And Luke gives us two reasons why. One's in verse 26. Felix is hoping for a bribe. Felix is hoping that somehow Paul would be eager enough for his own freedom that he'd be able to uh, rustle up some cash from his followers and bribe Felix to let him go. And the other reasons in verse 27, where Luke says that Felix left Paul in prison because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. He was using Paul as political capital in order to make the Jews happy. This was where Felix's heart was. He knew that releasing Paul would upset the Jews, would disturb the peace, and so he left Paul in prison for two years until his successor, Portius Festus, took his place in Caesarea because he was greedy, because he was earthly-minded, because he was selfish. And during those two years, Paul did what Paul did, right? Because he was focused on the will of God and not his own will. He was focused on the ministry of the gospel and not his own freedom. Paul said, I got this two-year opportunity to teach Felix all about Jesus. Felix, Paul says in verse 22, had an accurate knowledge already of the way. Knowledge in his head. He understood who the followers of Jesus were and and at least something about what they were all about. He had an accurate knowledge of Christianity, possibly because his wife Drusilla, verse 24 says, was a Jewish woman. And so she would have understood this Jesus movement and explained it to him. And so during the days of Paul's imprisonment there in Caesarea, Felix and Drusilla had Paul come and speak to them about faith in Jesus Christ. What an opportunity, right? And yet what a tragedy that by the end of the chapter there is no faith, there is no saving, life-transforming faith that comes to Felix or Drusilla after hearing from the Apostle Paul himself for two years all about what the Christian way is. Verse 25, Paul, it says, reasoned with them, taught them about three things, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. You know what that is? That's a whole gospel. And the whole Christian life in three categories. He taught them about the righteousness that the holy God, who is holy, 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 the righteousness that He requires. You must be holy as I am holy, declares the Holy One who made us in His own image. But we're not holy. We're not righteous. And Paul spells all of this out in all of the letters that he writes all over the New Testament, right? 
We can't, according to our sinfulness and the weakness of our flesh and the natures that we've inherited from Adam, we can't be holy. It's impossible for us to be holy as God is holy. We can't please God even, Romans 8 says. And the wages of our sin is death, eternal, everlasting death. And the only way of salvation is for God Himself to supply us with the righteousness that He requires and account it to us and and clothe us with it through faith in Jesus Christ. Which Paul talks about again in Romans and Galatians and Colossians and everywhere. The righteousness that comes from God, not, not a righteousness I must have, the righteousness that comes from God through faith. That's what Paul's teaching them about here. Then, he says this, he says, and after you've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, there needs to be self-control that starts to dominate your life. In other words, your life needs to begin to change and grow and mature in increasing sanctification and holiness, right? Once God accounts someone righteous in Christ, He also always begins the process of sanctifying them, transforming them from people who live according to the lusts of the world and the flesh into people that more and more resist those temptations and live according to the will of God and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And then, thirdly, he taught them about the coming judgment, about the reality that the one true God who is holy, holy, holy will one day send all the fullness of His divine wrath pouring down from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. And on that day, only those who are justified by faith in Jesus will be delivered from that coming wrath. And all of those who are truly justified by true and living faith in Christ will be every day of their lives leading up to that day, will be growing by the powerful working of God within them in knowledge and in grace and in increasing holiness and righteousness in their lives. And if they're not growing, they're never going to be fully grown, they're never going to be fully mature until glory, but if they're not consistently growing then it will end up being proof that their faith isn't real. Just like the demons that James speaks of, right? They believe, but they're not saved. They shudder at the God who they believe in. Because the kind of nominal, non-life transforming faith that they have can't save anyone, James says. Charles Spurgeon said, unless your faith makes you pine after holiness and pant after conformity to God, it's no better than the faith of the devils. And perhaps it's not even as good as that. Well, that's the, that's the clear message of James chapter 2, right? It's also the clear message of the Apostle Paul all throughout the New Testament. And that's exactly what he's saying to Felix and Drusilla here. He's saying, you have got to repent of your unrighteousness. This isn't fire insurance. This isn't say the words and suddenly you can continue to live your life as you always have and never grow, never mature. You could just be dull and infantile 
in this nominal faith and still go to heaven? No, no, no. Paul's saying you've got to repent of your unrighteousness and believe on the righteousness of Christ for salvation with such a living faith that it continually transforms your life and sanctifies you and conforms you more and more into the very image of the holiness of God and the glory of Christ. And they didn't like that message. (laughs) Any other faith in the faith that produces a growing harvest of good works and holiness and fruit that is in keeping with repentance cannot save you, Paul is saying. And when Felix heard that, he was alarmed, verse 25 says. You mean i got to change my whole life or I'm going to burn forever? Yep. But it's not you changing it, it's God changing it. And you have to lean on Him and put your whole trust in Him. So Felix, see, Felix was ready to hear something about Christianity. He had some interest, but when it came to the core essence of the gospel, which includes our lives being increasingly sanctified and transformed, he didn't want it. Well, why not? Because he didn't want his sin transformed. He didn't want to be growing, changing, He didn't want repentance and a life of growing holiness because he loved his sin. And he wanted to cling to it too much. For two years, Luke says, Felix would have Paul brought in to tell him more about Jesus and the way. But Luke never records any kind of repentance. And history tells us that whatever interest Felix and Drusilla had whatever kind of appreciation they had for the truth of the Christian faith and the gospel. They never truly believed it because they never truly changed. They remained worldly, greedy, ungodly, pagan people. Whatever belief they had and interest they had was an understanding of some kind, but it didn't lead to them pining after holiness and panting after conformity to God. Now, let's conclude this way. Think about those words of James in James chapter 2. That faith without works is dead and cannot save anyone. Think about those sobering Words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the soils where he describes certain seeds that were sown in the field of the world, the gospels going out everywhere. Some of the seeds fell among rocks or thorns and they sprouted for a time. Looked like there was a a response. But in the end, in the end they ended up getting choked out by temptation or withering and dying under the heat of affliction because they had no true root in Christ who is the source of life. So they didn't continue growing, thriving, bearing fruit. Think about the sobering words of Hebrews 5 and 6 that I read to you at the beginning. Warning us all about the dullness of faith that leads to spiritual stagnation and a failure to keep growing and maturing in our faith, which leads to falling away, like the unrooted sprouts in Jesus' parable, which leads to condemnation. 
because despite someone professing faith in Jesus, they end up proving by their unfruitfulness that they never actually possessed saving faith in Jesus. All of those are uncomfortable passages that are difficult for us because they're designed that way, to make us uncomfortable, to make us ask ourselves, are we truly saved by true and living faith in Jesus Christ like Paul was? The kind of living faith that is leading to an increasing maturity and growth and holiness. Or is our belief in Christ as the way more like Felix's? An understanding Maybe even an interest, but not one that is really interested in repentance and in regular, ongoing, increasing growth spiritually and maturity spiritually. Those questions which these difficult passages ask of all professing professing believers in Jesus, these are uncomfortable questions by design. They're designed to spur us to a deepening faith in the Word and the Gospel and in Jesus Christ. I need to be growing. That's the point. If you're not growing, your faith may not be real. So I need to be growing by the power of God within me so that I can be confident that my faith is real and sure of my calling and my election, as Peter says. So these passages are, are they're designed to spur us to this deepening faith that makes us more and more pine after holiness and pant after conformity to God in an increasing way, which causes us never perfectly in this life, but more and more to be growing, to be thriving, to be maturing in being conformed to the image of the holiness of God and the glory of Christ. So how do you know which kind of faith you have? Living, saving faith or, or a nominal, dead, non-transforming faith that can't save anyone? How do you know? Well, you know by whether or not it's producing fruit. That's just what God's Word says. You're not perfect, neither am I. Never will be in this life, not until glory. We'll always have sin that remains in us. We'll always be waging war against that sin. We'll always be putting sin to death. The question is, are we doing those things that end with I-N-G. We will never be fully grown, but are we growing? We will never be fully mature until glory, but are we maturing? I know that there's sin in your life. I know that it makes you doubt. I know that it shakes your assurance sometimes. The question isn't, is there sin? The question is, are you growing? Are you maturing? I know you're not as mature as you want to be. It's okay. Are you maturing? Or have you grown dull and become like an unthriving, immature, spiritual infant and plateaued at a relatively immature level and found yourself not caring to grow in repentance and spiritual maturity anymore? If so, you ought to be concerned about that. And these passages ought to make you be concerned enough to say to your God, help me to start growing again. Help me to start mortifying the sin that remains in me and growing and thriving in holiness, right? Because John Owen says, you need to be killing sin every day in your life or else it will be killing you. 
Examine yourselves, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, to see whether you are in the faith, in the true living, fruit-producing, life-transforming faith of Jesus Christ. Test yourselves, or do you not realize that here's the hope behind that admonition. Test yourselves this year in the faith. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? If you're really a Christian and you're interested in growing, test yourself by looking to the one who is in you and saying, help me be growing, and he will. Because he's Jesus Christ. He's got all the power of God to give you to help you be growing. And every time, if you say, God, give me a million dollars, he may not answer that prayer the way you want him to, but if you say, God, help me be growing, he always will help you. Don't you know Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? You hear that? If you're truly in the faith, Jesus Christ is in you with all the divine life-giving power to transform you, to grow you, to mature you, to bear fruit in and through you, to cause you more and more to pine after holiness and pant after conformity to Him. But if you don't care about that, if the sin that remains in you doesn't bother you and you're not interested in repenting, you're, you're content not to repent or, or to continue growing and you're not interested in continuing to grow and thrive and mature, then you should be concerned that you might fail to meet the test, that Jesus might not actually be in you. Listen to how Peter puts it. 2 Peter chapter 1, God's divine power. That's good stuff, right? God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How are you going to be growing? Well, God's given you all the power you need already. Because Christ is in you, if you're a true believer in Him. So, for this very reason, Peter goes on to say, make every effort. Use the power. Do something about it. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and with knowledge and self-control, as Paul said to Felix and Drusilla, and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Because with Christ in you, with all of God's divine power at work in you, as you do that, as you make every effort to grow in holiness, the divine power of the presence of the person of the risen Jesus will get it done. Because He's the one at work in you as you strive to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, and as He does... As we grow and mature in repentance and holiness, we will, Peter goes on to say, make our calling and election sure. Because the evidence that our faith in Jesus is actually a living faith will be in the growing fruit that he is producing through us. Not as we sit back passively and do nothing about it and go, well, if God's not producing any fruit by me just sitting here, then I must not be a Christian. No, you've got to be striving. Make every effort. Be diligent. And he will give you the strength to bear the fruit. And to not grow dull and fail to thrive and stagnate in spiritual immaturity. Therefore, brothers, Peter says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election because if you practice these qualities by the strength of divine power, the presence of Christ in you, if you do this this way, then you will never fall. See? If you're striving, growing, maturing, you won't be falling and you will not fall. You'll stumble. You'll sin. 
You'll never realize perfection, but you will grow, you will mature, and you will continue to run the race with endurance, even when the race is brutal, and you won't fall, and you won't fail to finish. It's all about the running, and the growing, and the maturing. And so today, God's Word needs to exhort us all this way to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to be confident that Jesus Christ is in us and that He wields all the divine power of the God who He is against the sin that remains in us so that as He is working in us both to will and to do what pleases Him, we can be diligently at work making every effort in His strength to put sin to death, to thrive in holiness, to grow, to mature, to run, to endure, to finish well and enter into His eternal rest. Christians, don't stop running. Don't grow dull. Don't fail to thrive. Don't be content with immaturity. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the ongoing renewing of your mind by the powerful working of God in you. For in this way, 2 Peter 1.11, as that process is going in your life, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as you are growing and thriving and maturing through faith in Him. Let's pray together. And then come boldly to the table of our Lord where we receive the grace and the mercy that we need so much to be growing and maturing in Him. Our God and our Father, we thank You for Your Word even when it's painful even when the sword pierces, because, Father, it points us to You as the source and as the One in whom everything we need for salvation and for life and godliness is found. And we know, Father, that if we belong to You and if Christ is in us, and as we strive for holiness, that He will change us and sustain us and grow us and give us the strength to run with endurance and bring us across the finish line and through the entrance to the eternal kingdom of heaven because He will hold us fast. And so, Father, help us to run that race by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus who is not only the author of our faith but the finisher of it. May we not be distracted by this world. May we not be distracted by our flesh. May we not grow dull of hearing. May we not fail to thrive. May we plead with Christ for all of the grace that we need to be maturing and to be growing and to be pleasing you more and more. And so, Father, we give you thanks that this grace is ours and ours in abundance in Christ Jesus, in whose name we say, Amen. Amen. Stand with me, Christians. Turn to page 12 and let's sing, Be Thou My Vision to Our Lord Jesus Christ.